Welcome to Talking Appalachian, Episode 2. When we talk about dialects, we're talking about three things, a, a recipe of three things. It's a form of language that's made up of its vocabulary, its grammatical or linguistic patterns and rules, and its phonology, or what we refer to as accent. So sometimes people use accent and dialect interchangeably, but they're not the same thing. Accent is the way we use our vocabulary. When we talk about dialects, th think about these varieties of a language, so these varieties of English, which is what we're talking about in Appalachia, as existing on a spectrum. And when we talk about the vernacular dialects, that's everything that is not standard American English or broadcast English. Vernacular dialects are influenced generally by regional and cultural influences. None of them are wrong or incorrect. They're all purposeful based on audience and occasion. So it's more about where and when you're using it than it is about whether or not it's correct. There's a differentiation between standard English and vernacular. So when we talk about Appalachian dialects, we're talking about, of course, the dialects of the Appalachian region. And so that's why we talk about it in the plural. There is no one homogenous Appalachian dialect, okay? There's no one way to speak Appalachian because if you see how big the region is, and culturally we're looking at Pennsylvania down to northern Alabama when we think about language in particular. When you look at how big the region is and you think about diversity in all its forms, there can be no one homogenous way to speak it. And, you know, people, people say things different ways. All of the things that influence dialects, that influence the vocabulary, that influence the, the syntactics of our language, it has to do with industry, it has to do with migration patterns, it has to do with the culture, the, the cultural influences that we bring with us. So when we think about the history of Appalachian Englishes, today's usage generally is best labeled colonial, how far back it reaches. Most of the things that you still hear in our vernacular dialect date to early to mid-18th century, and this is according to Michael Montgomery, the late Michael Montgomery, who was perhaps the most knowledgeable person about Appalachian Englishes. And the largest influences are from Southern England. Now, people like to say that we speak Elizabethan English. That's not true. There are traces of Old English, Chaucerian English, and Elizabethan English that remain. One of the reasons that a rumor that, that is still circulating is, number one, it's romantic, and, and it's been around for a very long time. And number two, so much of Christianity, particularly in central and southern Appalachia, is rooted in Protestantism and the, the King James Version of the Bible, which was translated around Shakespeare's time. It sounds where, you know, when people worship or testify or pray, it sounds, it's Elizabethan, right? It sounds Elizabethan. And so that's one of the ways, I think, that Elizabethan English has remained in Appalachia, but it's concentrated to a, a very specific community of practice. But it is something in, in some churches that you will hear in sermons, or you'll hear in testimony, or you'll hear in prayer, or you'll even hear in song. How great thou So again, when we think about influences and loss, we look first at indigenous people 
and their languages and what they contributed. And so little still remains because we know the tragic history, you know, the great removal and the ways that native cultures were, they basically attempted to erase them. Very little of indigenous influences remain except for place names geographic names, place names, animal names that we still use, that we still hear. And notice how they change based on region. There are things that you might hear in one area of Appalachia that you wouldn't hear in another area of Appalachia. In terms of place names, you've got Tennessee, borrowed from the Cherokee, Ohio from the Iroquoian, and Alabama from Choctaw. We have the words Appaloosa and Bayou from Choctaw. In Virginia, early colonists adopted opossum, which we call possum, raccoon, and persimmon from the Powhatan. And in Western North Carolina, you'll hear Catoosa bass, Cullowee, which is an edible wild green, Talala bird, which is the Cherokee name for woodpecker. know from migration patterns that the Scots-Irish were very influential. By 1776, there were 200,000 Scots-Irish here in the Appalachian region, and 100 years later, there were 2 million. And so besides those from England, the Scots-Irish were incredibly influential in terms of culture and language and music. And so Montgomery, in his research of Appalachian Englishes, identified 400 linguistic items that are still in use, particularly among older generations, but not always, that you still hear that are directly linked to Ulster and Scottish sources. And when I do these presentations with live audiences, I love to ask people how much of these they know before I tell them what the word actually means, you know. And, And a lot of people are familiar with haint and granny, words like that, but they're less familiar with snake feeder or persnickety or poke for paper bag or sack. My great-grandmother used that for, I never heard her say paper bag. It was always poke and, you know, we had cherries and apples and all these trees on her farm and she would say, go grab a poke and get you some apples and bring them home. And so that's a word that I still remember, but it is not a word that I use, and it's not a word that my children use. And so when a word stops being used, probably my grandmother was the last one I heard use it. My parents don't use it. When a word falls out of use, we call that leveling in in a dialect, and and that's, that's loss. That's loss happening. And One of the reasons why that happens in generations is, I think, the influence of education, the influence of travel, the influence of things like the internet. That's a sad, you know, reality, particularly in language, which which is another reason why preservation, I think, is so important. Here are some words that are still in use, you know, red up a room, clean up a room, a bald, which is an area on top of a, a cleared space on top of a mountain poke we just talked about awful as a modifier. It's awful blustery outside today, which is true. Haps for quilts, wash, that awful wash that you will even hear all the way up in Pittsburgh and all the way down into southern Appalachia. And then, of course, German influence. So Southern Englanders, the Scots-Irish, and German influence. And this is mostly northern Appalachia because that's where the Germans settled. Hot potato salad, schmierkäse, and I don't speak German, but I think that comes from schmierkäse. It's a type of cheese 
sauerkraut, a viewing, what you do before a funeral, washboard, what you clean clothes on, and dressing. So remember those three areas of dialect that I was talking about, grammar, phonology, and lexicon or vocabulary. So these are just some examples of grammar patterns that you would hear or see in Appalachian English is spoken. And I'll just go over a couple of these for time, but regularizing irregular verbs, and that's a simplification strategy. So when we ask, why do people do this? Why do people do this when we're taught from an early age that you don't do that? That's a broken rule. Well, we do it because we are comfortable with our home voice. And so home voice is different from what we're taught in school. Georgella Lyons says it so beautifully in an essay called Voice Place. It's in our book, Talking Appalachian, that Nancy Hayward and I co-edited. It's such a beautiful... It's also in Bloodroot, which is an edited collection. She says it's the first voice tuned by the people in the places that made us. That's our home voice. And I love, I love her words and way of describing vernacular dialect or home voice. So we, we break the rules, so to speak, because that's what our parents did. That's what our grandparents do. And that's what remains comfortable. Grammar is the one thing I think that carries the most, it's the part of dialect that carries the most stigma, part that might get you a funny look if you say it with the wrong person. You know, I always use this example if I'm sitting on the front porch with my, my grandmother, who's 86, who speaks, you know, in a vernacular dialect. I don't want to sound like Dr. Amy Clark, so it's okay for me to say the wind blowed the trees down or I ain't got, I ain't got nothing today to talk about or, you know, whatever. Um, double helping verbs, we like to pile on the modifiers, so might, could, might, should. That originated in Scotland. Multiple negatives, and that goes all the way back to Old English. Ain't nobody never been to see her not once. And that once is also an intrusive T, which is a phonetic variation. They for there, they's a new bookstore in town, and agreement patterns. I'm going to show you something interesting about agreement in just a minute, but the birds flies south. And again, the reason that we do this is because English is much more complicated than it has a right to be. <laughs> and so when we do this, we just simplify what is an otherwise... It's not because we don't know better. It's not because it's broken English. It's not because we're ignorant. We're simplifying something that is otherwise more complicated than necessary. And we're storytellers. And so we like to pass down these ways of seeing things. I took my Rhetoric of Death in Appalachia class to a cemetery. We found this on a tombstone. Their lives was beauty, truth, goodness, and love. And so that's a great example of a dialect, Appalachian dialect variation in central Appalachia in a cemetery on a gravestone. And one way that it's being preserved, hit for it, haint, not the ghost haint, but haven't or ain't, the intrusive R, the phonetic glide get, forget, pin, pin. I do that. You heard me say again just a minute ago. So that was fashionable 200 years ago. So I'm still in fashion. The short I in words like light and night, you hear that in my... I'm from Lee County, Virginia, by the way. I'm from the area that Demon Copperhead is set in. If you have read Barbara Kingsolver's book, that's that's my, that's my home place. And so that's what you hear in my voice. How great thou art, how great thou art. 
shall come with shouts of acclamation. Hello, kindred spirits. If you like the content I'm putting into the world about the culture of Appalachia and you just want to support the podcast, there are links in my show notes where you can do just that. Whether your support buys me a cup of coffee during these long hours of editing, I do it all myself. Or if you want to offer a monthly contribution, for which I'm happy to include your name or organization or your book as a supporter on our show notes and give you early access to episodes and other perks. Maybe you can just share the episodes you love the most and spread the word about us, which is totally free. I appreciate you and any support you have to spare. Find me on patreon.com slash Talking Appalachian Podcast or at Talking Appalachian on Facebook and Instagram. And don't forget to keep talking Appalachian.